Well, amen. Thank you so much, praise team. Brothers and sisters, it's a joy to be here with you this Sunday. I return with my wife and our two oldest children, our two oldest daughters, uh, just a couple days ago from Europe, where we were for two and a half weeks. And uh, we had been planning several years to do this trip, and the seminary gave me kindly a sabbatical this summer, portion of the summer for my five-year anniversary, so we were there. So we, of course, for two and a half weeks, went to London, Berlin, Prague, Vienna, Munich, and Paris, and returned back to the good old U.S. a couple of days ago. So if you're considering going to Europe, take it from me. It's highly overrated. Uh, I just went. Uh, we, it was special, but everywhere we went, everyone talked funny. Uh, their cars are the size of a coffee pot, and uh, in two and a half weeks, I cannot find anyone who knew how to fry food, okay? So here we are. But seriously, it's good to be back, and I want to draw your attention this morning to the Gospel of John. John chapter 3, we're looking together this morning at one verse, verse 16. The title of the sermon is, The Greatest Verse in All the Bible. John chapter 3, verse 16. It's a verse doubtlessly you know. It's a verse all of us know. It's a verse that stands like a mountain peak out from Scripture, and in a sense informs every other verse of Scripture. It's a verse we learned as young children in vacation Bible school, and RAs, and GAs, and Awana. It's a verse many of us heard preach when we came to faith in Christ. It's a verse that just seems to hang around in a perennial way, always coming back to the church and to the Christian life. It's a verse that we acknowledge a particular affinity for. I have five children. I love them the same. I love every verse in the Bible the same as well. But there's something about this verse that calls us back again and again to it. John chapter 3, verse 16. It's a verse we see plastered around throughout society more broadly. We'll watch a sporting event and see someone holding up a sign that says John three sixteen. It's a verse that's often adorned on blankets and on cards and on refrigerators and other places. But there is a danger if we confess, there is a danger with this verse, there's a danger associated with familiarity. A danger in knowing the truth contained here and sort of becoming complacent with it and assuming that we know it and we believe it and we've embraced it and just sort of putting it on the shelf. But oh, we would be remiss not to come back to it again and again and again as believers and as a church family. Read with me John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we pray this moment, this morning, our hearts would be arrested by this verse. Father, this verse in concentrated form presents us with the gospel of Jesus. And I pray now, Father, for open ears, open hearts, those in the room, those watching and listening online or through other mediums. And Father, I pray this morning for believers that our hearts would be stirred with greater affection, with a greater sense of ministry urgency over what we see here. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
This may indeed be the greatest verse in all the Bible because it contains perhaps the greatest truth in all the Bible, that God has given His Son as a gift to us. That God has given us, that God indeed has given the world the greatest gift that could be given, the gift of His Son. Now, John chapter 3 is this great chapter situated in the middle of this great book, the Gospel of John. And in the preceding verses, you know the story. Jesus has this great exchange with this man named Nicodemus who comes to him by night inquiring about eternal life. And Jesus presents with him the reality that you must be born again to see, to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then as that discourse is being buttoned up, Jesus then conveys this great truth, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I want to invite you this morning to gaze with me at this verse anew. It's almost like a family member, a spouse or a son or daughter that you're so, you know so well and you're so familiar with, you see day in and day out. And if you don't look at them closely, you just assume they look the same and they are the same because they've always been the same. And you become blinded by the beauty that is. This verse, in some ways, is in danger of falling into that category. A verse we know so well, a a verse that we have seen before, that we have observed before, that we've heard preached before, that we've taught before, that most of us in the room perhaps even could recite this great verse. But to gaze at it anew and ask God to teach you something this morning. Notice this verse falls quite naturally into three different truths that are presented, three different points that come from it. And the first is this. I want you to see with me the motivation of God's great gift. Notice verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave. For God so loved the world that he gave. What motivated God's gift of his son? What prompted, what moved God the Father to send his son? You would almost think that verse 16 would read, for for Jesus sent himself. But no, it tells us that, that God so loved the world. God so loved the world that he gave his son. What puts the so in verse 16? I mean, it'd be enough if it just read, for God loved the world that he gave his son. But it says instead, for God so loved the world. What about this gift? What about this love necessitates the word so to be before it. I'll tell you what it is. Notice first this gift of God's love. It is not bound by time. It is not bound by time. It is not conditioned by time. It's an eternal gift. 
This word here for, for gift, for, for, for get, given, it is, it is in, the, in the aorist tense, meaning it is, it is not bound by time, it originated in eternity past. You see, in the infinite wisdom and love of God in eternity past, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, they covenanted together to redeem a people. And so God's gift, this gift of love, it originated in eternity past, and therefore it has never been plan B. It's not as though God, God created and then was caught off guard by Adam and Eve's fall and then had to kind of scramble to develop some plan to, to, to bring some good out of this creation. No. From eternity past, God covenanted the Father, the Son, the Spirit to save a people. And this gift of love is not bound by time. Notice also it's an unconditional act of love. For God so loved the world that he gave. It's not negotiated. Uh, there is no arbitration to be entered into. It is not subject to being voided. Have you ever bought a, a piece of merchandise, an automobile or an appliance or some mechanical piece and, or an electronic device, and, and it comes with a warranty, and you begin to read it over? And there are all these clauses in there and caveats, and basically there is no warranty behind the warranty. It's so conditioned. This gift of God's love for, his, for, for, for humanity, this gift of God's love, it does not come with any conditions attached to it. It doesn't expire. It doesn't have a shelf life. It comes to us presented because it indeed is an agape type of love. That's what this word in verse 16 is this agape love. Some of you who've been following Christ over the years have heard this word referenced before. It's this act of love, this, this act of love that is unconditional, that is given without expecting anything in return, without wanting anything in return, given to bless. That's exactly the word here. For God so agaped the world. He so unconditionally loved the world, and to personalize it, he so unconditionally loved you that he sent his son. A number of years ago, I pastored a church, and uh, there was one family in the church, an older couple that were very dear to me and my wife, and uh, just a very sweet couple, and they had three kids that by that time had reached adulthood and were, were living adult lives, and uh, two of them were great, upstanding uh, men and women, and one of them, well, was kind of always seemed to live life just staying one step ahead of the hounds. Uh, was always in trouble, always had made a mess of something, and was always kind of drifting in and out of the favor of her parents. And the parents who are friends to me, they would say to me probably once or twice a year, we've had it, we're going we're to change our will, we're putting her out of the will, we're revising the will. And then they would get frustrated and say it, and then they would cool off and they would not change their will. But there was always this threat, perhaps justifiably so, but always this threat of this child not getting this inheritance because it was a conditional inheritance. But God's gift for love here, brothers and sisters, it is not conditioned on our past performance or on our future sin. 
God knew exactly how we were, exactly what we've done, the fallenness that our life demonstrates, the sin that we have committed. He knows all of that about us and more, yet He still gave His Son. Notice it's an unconditional love. It's also an unlimited love. Notice verse 16. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. It's not referring to earth as far as the material uh, reality that we abide, this rock we live on. It's referring to, to mankind. That God has given this gift, what we refer to as the, the open offer of the gospel, that Christ came for all people, and that anyone who will believe in Christ will be saved. I was in Europe, as I mentioned just a few days ago, and my wife and I and our two girls were sitting in Paris and eating at a restaurant, world famous for French cuisine. You may have heard of it, Five Guys. And we were there eating, and uh, my, my, my international travel is always the same, whether I'm in Asia, the Middle East, or in Europe. It's to see the international sites, but to eat the American food whenever I can find it. And Five Guys was, I would have kissed the owner of Five Guys in that moment when we happened across it. And I was there eating, and we were eating lunch there in, in this restaurant. And Paris, of course, is a French city, but also an international city. People from everywhere are there, and you're eating in this restaurant. You're looking around, you're seeing every different ethnicity and nationality imagined in this restaurant. In that moment, I was struck anew by the reality of this verse and reminded in that moment of my desire to preach it again, that whoever you are, wherever you're from, on the globe, wherever you are, your background, whoever you are, that God sent His Son for you there's one type of person God especially desires His Son to save. That is you. It's an unlimited gift. Notice also, it's an actual gift, not a potential gift. Notice verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave. That He gave. This gift has taken place. It's not hypothetical. It's not futuristic. It's not something we hope to realize. It's something that has happened. Do you ever say to people, I find myself saying this, not, not, uh, not meaning anything but with full integrity, saying something like this to people, well, if, if I can help you, let me know. If I can do anything for you, let me know. Oh, your, your wife's in the hospital, let me know if we can be of help. And we say that all the time, and we mean that with sweetness and with sincerity. I know I do, and I trust you do as well. When we say that to encourage or seeking to serve the body of Christ, let me know if there's anything I can do, let me know. That's an appropriate thing to say, an appropriate category for church ministry. But notice verse 16. God doesn't condition this gift by saying, if there's something you need, let me know. He doesn't write a check that he may not have to cash. Verse 16 stands there with a shocking presentation that not only would God give his son, but that he gave his son. 
Brothers and sisters, I have two degrees from seminaries, an MDiv and a PhD degree, and I say this not to impress you, but I say this to state this fact with full integrity. The greatest truth I know is verse 16. The greatest truth for us to ponder as a people of God is John chapter 3, verse 16. In fact, I remind the story of the theologian Karl Barth, who uh, lived and taught in the middle and second half of the 20th century, was once lecturing at Princeton University. And after his lecture, he was asked by a group of students in a crowd what the greatest theological thought he ever considered was. And Dr. Barth said this, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. This is the love of God. And look at me this morning, folks. This is the love of God poured out through the gift of His Son for the many, yes, but also for you. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. Notice verse 16, secondly. Notice the the sacrifice of God's gift. For God so loved the world that he gave. Gave what? That he gave his only begotten son. Not an angel or prophet or an apostle, but he gave his only begotten son, meaning his his unique son, one of a kind, his only son, he gave up. Imagine having a child, not five or eight or two, but one. And having not only a perfect relationship with that child in the time that you've known them, but having a perfect relationship with that child from all eternity past. And being willing to give up that child, not merely to separate the relationship by that child going to a distant place, to give them up in that first sense, but to give that up in a second sense, knowing that child would actually lay down his life. For God loved the people enough, and it would be one thing if God looked down and saw a a meritorious crowd who through some great tragedy we had been positioned to receive the wrath of a divine judge. But no, God saw people that are fallen and dark that think what we ought not think, that say what we ought not say, that do what we ought not do, that go where we ought not go, people that are broken, tainted by the effects of sin. And God said, nonetheless, my son will go. The sacrifice of God's gift in this type of love demands a response. Have you ever given someone a gift? Perhaps you really sacrificed for it. You just, you splurge. You, you just, you splurge. You shocked your spouse by buying a piece of jewelry or an item that you knew they would love. And, or you shocked a child by, you really splurge. You dug down deep. You gave a gift that really, you felt it in the pocketbook. 
You gave it to them, and you felt they kind of yawned at it. They said, oh, I have one like this, or, uh, you know, that, that's nice. Do you mind if I, do you have the receipt? Do you mind if I exchange it? You know how that feels? You know how that feels? Yet, to listen to the preaching of the gospel, the message of Christ, and to yawn at the gift, God's gift of His Son, carries much greater consequences. Moreover, for the people of God who have received this gift and understand the love of God and have been forgiven by God through the precious gift of His Son, to harbor unforgiveness with other people, folks, that just that cuts against the grain of God's goodness and God's personhood. We are called to be a 1 Corinthians 13 people to forgive others for sins they've committed against us or sins they committed against other people. Which leads us thirdly, notice verse 16, to the required response to God's gift. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So what do we do with this? We are called to respond. The promise is before us, whosoever, there's a breath there, an openness there that that precludes no one, that cuts out no one. Whoever believes in him, meaning puts their faith in Jesus, repents of their sin, and embraces him. Not just with mental assent, not just, you know, understanding a guy named Jesus lived in Galilee 2,000 years ago. My mind is full of historical facts about people from the past two and a half years. I can tell you more than you want to know about Louis XIV or the 15th or the 16th, more than you want to know about the Habsburg family, more than you want to know about the British Empire. I can tell you about a lot of people I've read about. That's not what verse 16 is about, brothers and sisters. It's about a belief that leads to action, about trust, about obedience, about following. It's a type of faith that reflects all that you are, being committed to all that Jesus is. Notice what happens. Verse 16. We're presented with a great segregation of groups. One perishing, dying apart from the love of God and spending eternity apart from the presence of God. But those who believe have eternal life. Jason, do you really believe there's these two categories and those who believe in Jesus go to an eternity with him and with the Father and with the saints in a perfect place called heaven where there are no tears, no pain, no illness, no death, no nothing bad? But if you don't die in Jesus, don't believe in him, you go to a place of real judgment and real torment and real death and real darkness and real fire, you bet you I do. You see this presented. All who know Jesus receive eternal life. That's what Scripture teaches. And that's why we're here, right? 
That's why we're worshiping today. There's a song in our hearts because we have life eternal now. John 17, 3 tells us we have knowledge of God now and the hope of a permanent relationship with Him. That's why when we grieve, when loved ones pass and great saints of this church pass, even as we experienced in recent days, we don't grieve as those without hope, but as those with hope because we believe this verse. You know, people are doing the craziest things to find eternal life. Uh, in the hotel room last night, my sons are changing channels, and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade was on, and this quest for the holy chalice to drink of it and have eternal life. I was reminded of the story I read a few years ago about a, a couple, a couple who both, husband and wife, both, both picked winning lottery tickets. Now, this is not an advertisement for the lottery, but this is an astonishing story that is gripping. This couple had spent over $126,000 over the years on lottery tickets. One of them, one of them hit the lottery winning $17 million. The other one hit the lottery winning just a little over $100,000. They had bought over $20 in lottery tickets each and every day for 15 years. The odds were 1 in 24 trillion that two people, husband and wife, would win the lottery the same week. 1 in 24 trillion. Take the 7 million people live on the planet, multiply that times 4,000, that's 24 trillion. But they won it. Here's what the husband said in the interview. The interviewer asked them what they were going to do with their new fortune. He said this, my wife wants to buy youth. She wants to purchase the fountain of youth to live forever. You can have $100 million. You can't purchase that. You can be dead broke and get it this morning. Jesus tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have life eternal. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the greatest truth in all the Bible. It's a truth we dare not yawn at. It's a truth for you this morning. I say to you this morning, young and old, if you have never embraced this Jesus, do it today. We're going to sing him a response just as I am. And if God has touched your heart this morning, you come today. We'd love to pray with you, to point you to Jesus and explain and unpack this verse to you that you may know this Jesus who stands before you and calls you. Would you pray with me? Father, we bow this morning.